Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. She was working on a novel about architect. Oh my God, that's what I hear. So tis the season where people are doing fireworks in my neighborhood. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. We are doing a wildcard season, meaning anything goes. So in this week's episode, we will talk about Esther McCoy. She was a pioneer, architectural critic, journalist, and historian. I'm Jessica Rogers celebrating National Cut Your Energy Cost Day by doing a little energy audit at my parents' house from Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rahr running my dishwasher during off-peak hours in San Francisco. And I'm Nergidi Rivas monitoring my thermostat in Houston, Texas. Okay, now for a disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning together. All right, so our story begins on November 18th, 1904. We are in a town of Horatio, Arkansas. Ooh, Arkansas. You know, we had an intern at the office that he was going to the University of Arkansas and he was educating me on all the cool architecture that they have in that state. I never knew. Oh, I know nothing about the architecture of Arkansas. So I'm very intrigued. <laughs> okay, so we're not going to learn about Arkansas architecture um, with okay. this lady. Well, never mind. Um, Teaser. So, but yeah, sorry. That's just where she was born. But quick tangent. I actually found an oral history as told by Esther herself. Ooh, noise. That's great. I love it when that happens. 
Yeah. It's part of the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Okay. How come this lady and some of these oral histories of our ladies, they don't talk about their childhoods. I feel like unless something traumatic happened, I get to hear very little about them. I want to know what were they like in primary school? What classes they enjoyed? (laughs) Did they have a best friend? Did they skip recess to read and eat Play-Doh? Like, what were these parents like? Like, were they close to their cousins? Did they have a lot of cousins? Like, did they have a pet dog, an imaginary (laughs) friend? Something. Yeah, yeah. It's very true. That's an interesting (laughs) observation. That's a lot of details you are looking for, Jessica, let me tell you. (laughs) But at least for me, I had a very different experience. Like I found the same thing, interviews and oral histories told by Lena Bobardi and Dora God. And they shared a lot of details about their childhood, actually. So actually also Jane Drew, I think. But maybe they weren't sharing their imaginary friends and this things you're asking for yeah it is interesting because i feel like it can go either way because actually next week's lady spoiler alert i also found an oral history like an interview with her and she talked a lot about her childhood too so i think it also could be dependent on the interviewer and what they're asking them i don't know some ladies it's just so hard to find info on their early childhood in life and other times it's like a whole book you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah So what I'm hearing is that when you write your autobiography, you'll include several chapters of your childhood, right, Jessica? Yeah, of course. Yes, it's the details that shape you. At least that's what I think. (laughs) Well, I wonder if maybe those ladies aren't comfortable sharing those details or maybe they think that people won't care as much for that. Like that's not what they're there to learn about them or read about. Like maybe Mm. people want to hear more about projects and the nitty gritty of their work. So that's what they focus on. Mm. And if they want to share their childhood, they should get a therapist. I don't know. Maybe that's what they're thinking about. I mean, obviously, we on this show care about the people behind the projects. But I often wonder if we are the rule or if we're the exception. Yeah, I know what you mean. I would assume they think people are interviewing them or want to know about their work in projects, right? Like if they're being interviewed for that. But I agree with Jessica that talking about your early life gives insight into how you got to the career you did and what drives you and that kind of thing. Yep. All right. But in the case of Esther, despite her life's work interview, because that's what I'm going to call it since they didn't talk about her life. I did find out a couple (laughs) of things besides the fact that she was born in Arkansas. She would live in Kansas and she would attend a preparatory school in Lexington, Missouri. She was hopping all over that area of the country. Mm hmm. What Esther was able to talk about in this oral history interview, life, work, whatever you want to call it. She was able to talk about that she had an older sister whom she was close with. And I guess it was because while she was hopping cities, she would attend with her sister the same boarding school. And she would also talk about like all the different books that she loved to read. She loved her English class and In the interview, she would recount the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales. And I don't know, I like to think that maybe it's just like a writer thing, remembering the pieces of writing that they were obsessed with. So like if I think about us as architecture students before college or even while we were in college, like I I can see the same thing. Like I was obsessed with Tadao Addo and Herzog and Demuron while I was in school. So ladies, can you recall any figures that you really liked or maybe like a type of architecture or I don't know, Mm. something? 
Well, like as a kid, honestly, I don't remember if I had one. If I had to guess, I think I would say I think I liked falling water a lot. Mm. I remember Mm. that one. Yeah, for me, it was Notre Dame in Paris. I love that building. It's still one of my favorites to this day. And I was really into it from a young age because my grandparents lived in Paris for a while and brought me back like a little gargoyle statue when I was five. Plus the Disney movie (laughs) Hunchback of Notre Dame was also one of my favorites. So, you know, there was just a lot there. That's cute. See, details. Childhood details. Just sorry. Just had to say that. Well, Esther, she would eventually end up at the University of Michigan after college hopping because that was another thing that she did. But I don't think she ever got her degree. Again, not much is told about her time in Michigan, except that she was very eager to go to New York and Paris. So blue. All right. So we're going to cut to after college where Esther ends up in New York, where Esther would be like 21, 22 years old. Just living her best curiosity-driven life, okay? She worked at a bookstore selling holiday cards. She would rent a room. Eventually, she'd move to the Bronx. She would spend her time outside of work just reading, going to the theater, and soaking up as much as she could. That sounds great. I would love to do all those things. And I also wonder what the Bronx was like in the 1920s. Like, that was about 30 years before my family moved there, so I have no idea what it was. What's interesting is how she recounted her struggles with trying to find a job as a writer in the city. She had wanted to work with an an editorial team or a publisher, but she wouldn't find much luck. She eventually would work with a novelist by the name of Theodore Drazer. He lived right across the street from Carnegie Hall. So I'm just adding these little nuggets. But with her time in New York, while she worked for Drazer, she would just meet all of these literally folk literary folks living in New York at the time. E.E. Cummings, Bonnie Granger, a sculptor by the name of John Flanagan. At the time, they weren't that famous. They were just struggling artists just trying to make it. But I hope that some of you recognize some of these names because they're kind of famous now. (laughs) I know E.E. Cummings, but not the other two. Same. (laughs) But that's cool that she got exposed to various creatives. Yes. Um, and eventually, your girl makes it to Paris. Que magnifique. Oui, oui. Oui. She went because she found her chance to go. She had saved enough money during her odd writing adjacent jobs in the city. And apparently it was very economical to live in Paris at the time. Oh, well, I wish I could just move over to economical Paris, you know? Yeah. Right. This is nice. <laughs> well, what was she doing there? Uh, just living more of her curiosity-driven life. She did a lot of exploring. Yep. She actually spent a month in Berlin. She would talk a lot to other writers. And in this interview that I'm listening to slash reading the transcript, she would meet some engineers that worked on bridges and dams in the States. For her, it was just fun to meet other writers. She recalls meeting communists and talking to them about Upton Sinclair. (laughs) communists i guess i like her now (laughs) (laughs) i mean it really just sounds like she's living that bohemian lifestyle though yeah i actually really like that right all right so i will be sure to share all of these links in our show notes i wanted to listen to the whole audio of the oral interview but instead i just read the transcript of the interview because y'all it is five hours long oh 
And there's just so much to come through, but it's going to get good. I promise. The suspense. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, it's already pretty good. I mean, yeah. But when she did the interview, she was already in her older years. And it's like asking your grandparents to tell you their life story and they start talking about every friend they met. But you really just want to know about their career and not about one time they moved to another country and they just ate baguettes and sipped martinis and the time they got <laughs> drunk with whatever new person they met. Wait, you were just complaining that she didn't include enough <laughs> color about her early life and now you're complaining about too much color? <laughs> yeah, I am very confused. <laughs> I guess she only wanted the childhood color. Nothing else, apparently. Yeah. She's picky with her details. Uh, Yeah, I'm picky with my details. And for the record, I just wanted to know what she was like as a child. And for a 30 minute okay. episode, which I'm sure we'll get over, we'll go over. I'm just looking for the highlight reel of her milestones and a little drizzle of tea. OK, that's <laughs> okay. So, uh, I don't know. Okay. I, uh, hypocritical, I guess. But I don't know. I, you know, me with how I leave last minute things to write. <laughs> but um, anyway. I just want to point out that Esther, she was writing. She might have gone published here and there, but there wasn't anything significant. What is important is that while she's exploring and talking to all these writers, she's mostly just like honing her craft and developing her voice and strengthening her skills. Do it, girl. Yeah. Yes. So eventually Esther would move back to the States at the end of the 1920s, right when the stock market would crash she would move to key west for a spell and then move back to new york but after a case of pneumonia she actually moved to california where her friend uh theodore drazer that i talked about earlier would hook her up with a friend in california with a place to crash and a job working at a bookstore this lady's really working her connections mm -hmm. lizzie would you let me crash with you in california <laughs> of course you're always welcome to crash while I look for a job at a bookstore? Sure. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like the beginning of a rom-com? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, so I gave you a little background of Esther, but now I feel like I can actually talk about how she fits into our story in our podcast because Esther's love for architecture truly began in California, not so much in New York. I mean, yeah, mm. it, while she was in New York, she would recall the different like Georgian architecture um, and a little of what she saw in Europe. But once she was in California, she loved the Spanish style homes in L.A. and Santa Monica, to be exact. I love it. Let the architecture begin. Yes. Now, however, what's interesting is that in L.A., what was lacking was this like intellectual conversations that she would have in New York and Paris and Key West. Because side note, she was hanging with Ernest Hemingway in Key West. But anyway, oh, casual. Yeah, just casual. <laughs> but more specifically, what she was in, what she was interested in was she wanted to talk about architecture and art in L.A. And it just wasn't happening. Wait, people in architecture in L.A. were not talking about architecture? No. Really? I'm surprised mm -hmm. by that. Like, I mean... I guess the case study houses would come years later. Yeah, they're not around mm -hmm. until after World War II. So did Esther put architecture on the L.A. map? Not yet. She would actually go back to New York for another time just to further her writing career and go where they were actually talking about architecture. So short lived. Yeah. 
So LA architecture scene would have to wait. Exactly. Um, While she was in New York this time, she actually became very radical. She would write for a lot of Democratic publications. But again, I digress. Old lady stories. Um, In the (laughs) mid-1930s, Esther moves back to California where she meets this fella by the name of Tim Robert, who was a contractor and drafter. And he would really introduce her to architecture. She just loved learning about houses and buildings getting put together. This is like whiplash with all her moving around. It feels on brand, though, don't you think? Throughout this whole story, she's been hopping all over the place. Yes, that's true. But I'm <laughs> I'm saying that the whole story just feels a little whiplashy. But when Jessica said, OK, now her story starts and California is where she starts her architecture journey, the leaving and returning surprised me a bit is all. But you're right. It's very on brand. I liked it when Jessica said that she moved to Paris and then she went to talk about her time in Berlin. Exactly. (laughs) This is how this old lady tells her story. Okay. 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 This is how she tells it. So I got just as much whiplash as you guys. I see. Okay. (laughs) But well, I just thought it was interesting, though, that she was exposed to cool architecture in New York obviously, but she was interested in writing about the architecture in California. But since the architecture writing scene was dull in California, at least it wasn't as poppin' where people were talking about it that much, she decided to go back to New York because it was poppin' there. Then she goes back to California because she just liked the architecture in California more, and she was more confident with her street, her writing street cred, you know? We're going to jump to 1941 because World War II is happening. Now, ladies, do any of you recall of these patriotic duties that the states had during the time for women? Uh, Taking over all the jobs that the men left behind? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. It's basically programs that would train women to be more active in the workforce while the men went off to war. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So Douglas Aircraft had such a program, which would train women to become drafters. So Esther became a drafter doing details for wing airplanes. Oh, that's cool. I like that. That's how she got into this. My thoughts exactly. Yes. So Esther, she would work as a drafter for about two years, but all the while she kept writing. This time she did write about architecture while during her drafting days, she would work on a novel about architecture, kind of like The Fountainhead. But, you know, The Fountainhead got published before her. So no one was really like looking for her work. But anyway, her first piece that actually was published, it was a review on the Schindler House. Ooh, the Schindler House. I really like that house. And I've always wanted to visit it when I'm in L.A. Actually, when Jessica and I were there, I looked into it, but it was closed for renovations. Sad. Lame. I know. Okay, so this was in 1943 slash 1944. And Esther knew that the war was going to end and or when it did eventually, when it did end, that her days as a drafter would come to an end. Oh, man. You know, I never thought of the mixed feelings women must have been going through at those times. I mean, obviously, it's great that the war was ending, but now they would lose the opportunities that had opened up for them. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason that we see more women starting to fight for their place in the workforce, actually, at that time. Uh, Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe that I had not connected those dots until right now. 
Mm-hmm. All right. She started really diving deep into architecture. While she was working as a drafter during her time off, she was exploring these houses in Malibu. And as I mentioned earlier, that's when she started working on her novel. She got published with her review on the Schindler's House. So, you know, she's shaking a bacon even while as a drafter. Um, and her next move would be trying to go to school for architecture. But that proved to be difficult with her being in her 30s, a woman. And now she's trying to get into architecture. Whoa, yeah. I can imagine that would be really hard. I mean, it's hard in general at that time for women to get into school, but especially when you're older and I'm sure with all the men coming back from war, there are less spaces for women in programs, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how are, I mean, she was making friends that were in the profession. She would go out and explore projects herself. She would read anything that she could. She actually wrote a review on someone else's review of Kerbu. Reviews on reviews. (laughs) Did she agree with the review? You know what? In this archive, I found every other piece of writing except for this review. Come on. Like everything. I know. I can show you where I found a copy. because I can show you a copy of a driver's license, (laughs) her rough drafts of her articles, the actual clippings of these articles. She has a folder called Corbu, and I found random photos of this man and possibly some of his notes, but not her actual thing. (laughs) So frustrating. Hopefully I'll find something in the wrap up episode, but I, I don't know. But for now, I can refer to a comment that she made is that this review was actually a letter to the writer, Harry Henson, about his review of Corbu. And she said something about like there being like silos and silos in architecture. I don't know. That's all I could get. But for her, she was actually proud and surprised that they decided to publish her letter at the New York World, which, again, I have no idea if this is a magazine or a paper, but Anyway, this was like a proud moment for her to talk about someone like Corbu. But all right. So anyway, I digress. Back to Esther. Now this Schindler house. Well, our girl Esther, she would actually work for R.M. Schindler, the architect, as his drafter. Oh, I love this. Ow! (laughs) So yes, after she's drafting airplanes, she actually goes to work for R.M. Schindler. And at this point of the interview that I keep mentioning, Esther goes into a deep dive about architecture and what it was like working with Schindler, that it was like the late 1940s. And she would also mention figures like Neutra and Wright as prominent figures in the architecture community at the time. Oh, I love me some Richard Neutra. I love his architecture, even though I always forget how to say his name right. I always think it's Neutra. Same. So it's Neutra? Neutra. I think it's Neutra. Okay. Well, his architecture is so good. Yes. And, you know, talking about Neutra and Wright, she starts to discuss how and when modern architecture would become popular. You see, at the time, it wasn't at all in the 1940s. If y'all remember, modern architecture would be briefly introduced at the Chicago World's Fair, but it wouldn't become popular until way later. And then it isn't until after World War II that stuff begins to happen. Yeah, I feel like this post-World War II era in L.A. is prime time for modern architecture, particularly residential architecture. For example, the case study houses that Nergity mentioned earlier. Right, right. 
Maybe we put some photos on social media of our case study house 22 photo shoot. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves if you catch my drift because this lady takes a long time to tell her stories and makes me to take an even longer time to take her stories. But anyway, the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that modern architecture took a while to get to California because it was considered to be a very conservative place at the time. And it wasn't until the case study house competition that we're talking about that uh, people would really start talking about market modern architecture. And then... Esther starts name dropping young architects like Sarandon and Eames bringing modern architecture to the West Coast. Oh, hey, we know a little bit about those folks. Yeah, we do. Listen to season five for some refreshers. Yeah, just the whole season, really. Um, Okay, so in her interview, Esther would talk about how geography and cost would influence modern architecture. And in particular, on the West Coast, she would talk about how they discussed architecture in the West as way different in the East Coast, which I thought was interesting. She says that folks in the East Coast were looking at how architecture was being done in Europe, that they weren't doing much looking inward to see what the rest of the country was doing. That's really interesting. I think I agree, though, that the East Coast was naturally sort of Europe facing instead of looking West Mm -hmm. at the rest of the U.S. for inspiration, because I think it's kind of like, oh, that's the older way of things. And so we're looking to you for inspiration, but it's almost like the osmosis flows West kind of thing. But I'm wondering, like on the West Coast, were they talking about modern architecture as it related to the East Coast, like kind of a like how the East Coast was talking about it in relation to Europe? Or do you think they were being more innovative with local constraints and not looking to other areas, like kind of focused on their own situation? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know enough about this subject to really have an informed conversation about it. But I like the points you're bringing up. I mean, yeah, when I think about some of the critics that we've covered on our show, I guess I would have to agree with Esther. She Esther is our first West Coast critic. But I think of our first season lady, Marianne Van Rensselaer. She was episode five. She mostly focused on the East Coast and the Midwest. And then I think of our episode 31 lady, Ada Louise. She mostly focused on the East Coast and Midwest, but she also looked at Europe, too. Yeah, I think I agree with it overall as an idea, but it's just kind of an interesting thing I hadn't thought about. Mm hmm. I mean, for that matter, besides Julia Morgan and maybe the Eames, how many other prominent West Coast architects do we know? During that time, uh, Green mm-hmm. and Green, Bernard Maybeck, Schindler. I don't really know where architects are from or like exactly which cities or states they're practicing in. I usually just know the country. Fair. Well, we can find... The answer to these questions from Esther's first published book called Five California Architects, published in 1960. So that could help you know, GD. Ooh, now I'm about to learn from five architects from California. Oh, is this like a West Coast version of the New York Five or something? Yes. Okay. so in this book, (laughs) she tells the lives and careers of Charles and Henry Green, Mm -hmm. R.M. Schindler, Irving Gill and Bernard Maybach. Yeah. And I know we can all be disappointed together because Julia was not mentioned in there. Yeah. What is up with that? Mm, Yeah, they definitely forgot someone. Come on, Esther. Mm -hmm. But okay, I'm glad to know that I picked four out of the five names. (laughs) Good job, Lizzie. (laughs) 
All right. So Esther would work for Schindler between 1944 and 1947. But while working for him, she would continue her writing. By the time she left Schindler's firm, Esther was now a more prominent face in the architecture world. She would be the one to talk about West Coast architecture, basically putting California architecture on the map. So prior to her book getting published, Esther wrote pieces for arts and architecture, a magazine that we can remember from our previous ladies that I mentioned, like um, Ada Louise and Marianne Van Metzier, as well as the Los Angeles Times. I love this. She's like the West Coast Ada Louise. Sounds Mm -hmm. like it. Pretty much. Okay, so publications, they were interested in Esther's writing. She never was like the head writer or anything like that compared to like Ada or Mariana. But she contributed and submitted a great deal of articles. Okay, so her contractor friend slash husband, he would get sick in the 1950s. Esther and her husband, they would move to Mexico for him to recover. Financially, this worked out for them because they were able to rent out their L.A. home and it was cheaper to live in Mexico City. Hmm. Um, While she was there, she would spend a period in the town of Cuernavaca. Oh, hey, we've been to Cuernavaca, actually. Our friend Stacy got married there back in the day. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Cuernavaca is known as the city of the eternal spring. And at least when we were there in the beginning of January, it felt like the name totally fit. The weather was perfect Mm -hmm. and the place was so beautiful. Yeah. Yes. Okay. so her time in Mexico would also come into her favor because at the time, conversations about international modernism and the Bellas Artes movement was becoming popular. And an architect by the name of Luis Baragan is making his name in Mexico. Hold up. Wait a minute. Do Esther and Clara know each other? (laughs) OMG, no way. I never imagined we would have a story overlap in this season. How cool! (laughs) Clara Porcet, as mentioned in the last episode, was a Cuban architect, interior, and industrial designer who spent a large part of her career in Mexico. Yes! All right, okay, so get this. Esther and Clara knew each other. Esther actually wanted to work with Clara to get her butaca chair manufactured in the States. This is so cool. I always love, love, love the connections we find, even in a wild card season. Ah, Mm -hmm. I'm still in shock. Such a small world. It really is. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So what's important to know about her time in Mexico was that Esther was really able to promote what was going on in Mexican architecture. She saw the European influences for sure, but she noticed that Mexico had its own distinct architecture that should be admired as well. That is absolutely great. Wonderful. And I'm assuming she wrote about it and tried to bring light to the awesome things that they were doing in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So Esther would submit articles on Baragán's work and she would also submit articles to places or publications like the Art and Architecture magazine, the Times paper and the New York Times magazine. Maravillosa. Mm-hmm. I might start a rumor that Esther is the reason we know about Barragan. I'll say <laughs> Esther is to Barragan as Aline is to Saarinen. I love this. Let's start it. 
That's a good rumor. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. So for the first period of her time in Mexico, she was only in Mexico for like about nine months. Um, and she would go back to California and she would pick up more work locally. Then in 1962, Esther's husband would get sick again and ends up passing away. Oh, no, that's sad. Yeah, it was sad. Now for Esther, she would use this time after her husband's passing to dive deeper into work. But it wasn't on architecture. She would do like a brief stint on television writing, but she never made it. Although she kind of wasn't interested in architecture writing. It's what she was getting calls for. It turns out that her that she was grieving her husband's death because she connected that with her love of writing about architecture. Well, that's understandable that she needed a little distance from architecture and all those memories after her husband passed away. I mean, the grieving process is long and it can be really difficult. Yeah, for sure. But the thing is, is that magazines and other publications, they were interested in learning about what was happening in the architecture world in South and Central America, which eventually Esther would agree to. um, And she would even be asked to travel to Italy and Brazil. And it was actually these trips to Italy that she said would get her excited about writing again. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that she was like, I'm a write about Central and South America. And now I'm in Italy. Yeah, I had to do a double take. Like, <laughs> wait, did I hear that right? Yeah, but, but again, again, on brand. brand. Yep. <laughs> also, did Jessica just say those two places in that order? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm wondering if Lena Bobardi is about to make an appearance in this episode. Uh, right? <laughs> Uh, no. Oh, At least oh, okay. maybe um maybe I'll I'll dig deeper and find it. But in her or history, she doesn't she doesn't talk about Lena Popardi. Okay, okay. All right. I mean, but I'd like to think that she was friends with them because she would become friends with all of these architects and designers because she traveled everywhere. But I do want to read this quote from Arc Daily about her. Esther would become the first American architecture journalist to acknowledge and write seriously about local modernist design culture in Mexico, understanding the value of this new type of regional contemporary design by presenting architects such as Luis Barragan, Juan O'Gorman, or Felix Candela to the American public. She contributed to undoing colonialist stereotypes about Mexican architecture previously seen as nothing more than a derivative form of North American culture. Isn't that cool? This is amazing. She almost feels like an architecture archaeologist, like she was unearthing (laughs) unknown architects and designers and like bringing them to light. I just really appreciate that she wanted to find new and interesting people to write about instead of writing about more of the same or the dominant style. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see the progression of her work, too, because in a way, when she was writing about the West Coast architecture, it was sort of unknown. Right. Or not as prominent. And then she went that step further and going abroad to do more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do like the way that she was defying stereotypes. I wonder how much of that was because she was bored of the same old, same old or because she was interested in shining a light on often overlooked architecture. Yeah, Maybe that's a, a little good question. Bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely think it was a little bit of both. And I also think it's back to that earlier discussion of West Coast versus East Coast architecture. And when I say West Coast, I don't mean just in the States, but everything that's not on the East Coast. Right. 
of that side. Now, Esther, she always worked as a freelance writer. Okay, she was known for promoting West Coast architecture to the masses. She would also promote the work of women landscape architects for the L.A. Times Home Magazine, which I also thought was cool. Okay, I wonder which lady she wrote about. Ruth Shellhorn, Florence Yock. <laughs> I'll have to look at her notes, but now you do have me curious and I'm going to have to keep digging. Yeah. It, this is going to be, it was a deep hole to get out of. But anyway, <laughs> Esther would also write other novels and short stories outside of architecture, and I'll be sure to include them in our show notes. And I want to get my hands on a couple. She, y'all, she wrote a detective series. Uh- I mean, okay, I'm really impressed. This lady was so versatile. Yeah, what? She had time to casually write a detective series? You know. Okay, so what I will say, though, is that in this interview uh, that I listened to slash read, speaking of time, it was refreshing to hear Esther talk about how she did things. You know, like she would say that when her husband was sick for a good point of their marriage or their life together. You see, her husband was sick for a good point in her life. So a lot of the financial responsibilities was left on her. So in this interview, she would say, yeah, I worked on this and that. And then I had to be home to cook dinner, but I loved cooking. So that was okay." It's really nice and refreshing for that time period. It sounds like she took those responsibilities in stride, you know. Mm-hmm. That's a lot, though. I know when people yeah. are in the situation, they do what they got to do. But I feel like I'm getting burnt out just hearing about it. I mean, as long as cooking was yeah. something she enjoyed and it maybe was relaxing for her. But I know what you mean. Yeah. It does sound like a lot. Yeah, I guess to add to this, she would talk about how she thinks she could have done better. She would say that she was good at working part and making money. But when it came to house stuff, maybe not so much. So I think she was honest. <laughs> I mean, it's not for everyone. Let's be real. It's okay, Esther. You don't have to be good at it. <laughs> it's really not for anybody. I know it was a time and she was expected to carry out her quote unquote woman duties first and foremost on top of anything else she had to do. But even to this day, there's this mentality that us working women are supposed to do it all. And we're really not. Unless you want to, I guess. I mean, if you want to, that's great. But I don't know. I'm just not about that life. I'm about the equal partnership life and whatever we don't have time to do or is not a priority for us. If it doesn't affect our quality of life, then it can't get done. And so be it. Yeah. I mean, her situation is different, though, right? Because her husband's sick, right? So it's not even an option to have equal partnership in that scenario. That's true. That's true. But I'm sure that she was doing her very best and 100 probably better than she thought it was. Yeah, for sure. All right. So in the month of December of 1989, Esther would pass away at the age of 85 in her Santa Monica bungalow. She had a good long life, it sounds like. I'm really glad we got to learn about how she worked to share the architecture from Mexico and other parts of Central and South America with the U.S. Yes. Thank you, Esther, for all you did to expand the architecture conversation to include locations, people and cultures previously excluded. And thank you, Jessica, for sharing her story today. Yes. Her story was just really refreshing to read about. Um, I I just felt like it was more real, maybe because it was coming from her voice. Mm -hmm. And she just seemed like a different. I've talked about a lot of writers and critics on our show. So it was but something about her just seemed different to me. What I do want to end on is this quote from architect Rainer Banna. 
No one can write about architecture in California without acknowledging her as the mother of us all. I love this. And yes, give mm-hmm. her credit. Yeah. So, everyone, we have now reached the second half of the episode, the karyotid. Najidi, can you remind us of what a karyotid is? I can. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. So, without further ado... This week's character goes to <laughs> Alexandra Lang. Alexandra. Yes. All right. So Alexandra Lang is an architecture and design critic. Her work has been published everywhere. Like we're talking Metropolis, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, just to name a few. Whoa. Jinx, you owe me a soda. <laughs> I'm really impressed. Those are a lot of big names. But Jessica, wait a minute. I think I recognize this name. Is she one of the editors for the podcast New Uncle Voice? Yes, Nergidi. She is actually the editorial lead for that podcast. OMG, that is awesome. I really like that show. It's like a 30-minute in-depth documentary in your ears about pioneering women of American architecture. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this as one of my favorite things in my birthday episode. Their episodes are excellent. I really enjoy them. They feed the history junkie in me. I cannot recommend this podcast enough. New Angle Voice. Great stuff. Yes, we love New Angle Voice. And actually, when Jessica and I were at the Powerful Nine Conference in L.A., we got to present alongside Cynthia, who hosts the podcast. And so I love that we get to highlight their podcast and Alexandra's work on the show because it really is a great show. Yay! It is. It makes total sense that Alexandra is a part of that group. Yeah. Because whenever I come across like editorials about architecture, her name is usually behind what I'm reading. Mm. And plus, she has also written a couple of books. Just last year in June of 2022, her latest book was published called Meet Me by the Fountain, An Inside History of the Mall. Oh, this is giving me flashbacks to like middle school, hanging out at the mall. Let's go to the mall, the mall. Y'all, I haven't been in a mall in a long time, but I'm excited to read this book. It's going to be (laughs) on my it's on my wish list. But anyway. Now it's time to sign off. But before we do, we want to give thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer. And most of all, we want to thank y'all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning more about Esther and Alexandra along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your journalists, your editors, your critics, your book. What was she doing? She, she worked at the bookstore. <laughs> yeah, your book. Your bookstore clerks. Store enthusiasts. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. 
This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at SheBuildsPodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, SheBuildsPodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until then, bye! Bye! Wait, that's, All right. it's Lang, not Lang. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, I, was like, I did not say that right. I did not say she that right. probably say her name right. <laughs> She's alive and she'll come find us. Yeah, she'll come for us. <laughs>designers and curious minds ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls i'm carrie seaburn structural engineer and host of unstruct the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design behind the math and physics structural engineering simply predicts building behavior join me as we simplify the complex making structural design accessible to everyone Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.